It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. It's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about close, but no cigar, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in this amazing universe, because that's exactly what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and you can follow along online or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about the reality of diversity in physics. But first, the news. Hey, space cadets, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent of the stars, we've got an exciting show for you today where we talk about all the amazing things in this universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So you can leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get your voice on the air or join the the Space Cadets tuning in live from around the world, including, but not limited to, Portsmouth, UK, Florence, Massachusetts, Deer Park, Maryland, Sussex, England, Kempner, Texas, Washington, D.C., Germany, Howell, New Jersey, New Zealand, Nashville, Tennessee, Ashburton, New Zealand, Phoenix, Arizona, and sad, Austin, Texas. I'll answer the questions that you send there, too. All seriously, the Space Cadets probably have more fun than I do, and I've only prepped 10 minutes to show material tops, so get those questions in. Before I start taking calls, I want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently, and two bummer things. One is out front a bummer thing, and the other is really a bummer thing, but disguised as a cool thing. The upfront bummer thing is... You know, that whole James Webb Space Telescope thing, you know, supposed to launch in March of 2021? Well, guess what? Yeah, it's going to be delayed. What did I tell you, folks? Everyone's like, no, 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 Paul, you're just being a pessimist. No, 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 I swear it won't be delayed this time. No, listen, they ironed out all the bugs. They got it. Like, we, we figured it out. It's delayed. No one knows when it'll launch. I mean, someone, I'm sure there's a date floating around out there. Don't believe it. It's just, I don't think this thing will ever launch. I don't think the James Webb Space Telescope will ever launch because I'm just an ultimate pessimist when it comes to this. <sighs> Sorry, I just need to center myself. I was getting too much negative energy, too much negative energy, which is different than dark energy, okay? You can be filled with dark energy. All it does is make you get bigger. Anyway... The other bummer news that was disguised as exciting news is I saw all these headlines this week about astronomers discovering a planet 
around a star where the planet is a lot like Earth and the star is a lot like the sun and the planet is is in the habitable zone of the star. So, like, here we are, a potential Earth 2.0, except not. the not, Okay, so the sun is, like, 10% brighter than the sun or 10% more massive than the sun. Okay, that's great. Planet is indeed in the habitable zone. It's the third planet in the system. It's not confirmed. I should say it's not confirmed. Uh, we don't have direct observations of this planet. What we have, how they actually found this planet, is very clever. We had Kepler data, the Kepler Space Telescope, found two planets around this star using the normal uh, transiting technique where the, the planet blocks a little bit of the light from the star. Then we dug into the data a little bit more, like years later, and found that there are tiny little variations in how often those planets orbited the star. And those could only be due to the presence of other planets that are tweaking and pulling on the orbit. So this is a technique called transit timing variation, or TTV, if you like saying words like that. With this technique, astronomers suspect that there might be two more planets in this solar system. Uh, Kepler-160, I believe, is the name of the system, also known as KOI-456.04. If you uh, want to plug that in and uh, start colonizing it, go right ahead. It's, it's pretty far. It's like 3,000 light years from the Earth. It's not confirmed, it's not confirmed, but if it is confirmed, there is a planet in the habitable zone of a star that's a lot like the sun. This planet is twice the size of the Earth. So it's like, fine, yes, they did some modeling, yes, they did some analysis, yes, if it does have an atmosphere like the Earth, it's a little bit farther from its star than we are from the sun, so things balance out and it looks like it's it's warm-ish, the Earth has an average temperature of 15 Celsius, this planet would have an average temperature of 5 Celsius, which is above freezing, I guess, that's nice, but still it's twice the size of the planet, so who the heck? knows what is going on and to me that's more of a bummer than a cool thing because we haven't actually found an earth-like planet yet we gotta keep looking we gotta keep looking anyway that's the latest grace when it comes to space let's have a conversation we've got a lot of voicemails ready to go so hey greg why don't you pick one and uh play that tape hi paul steve here from aberdeen scotland The universe is expanding. Space-time is expanding. My understanding of space-time is that the dimension of time is inextricably locked in with the three spatial dimensions. Does this mean that time is expanding along with the spatial dimensions? Do we have to take this into account when we are measuring, for example, the age of the universe? Thanks, Paul. This is a really fun question, Steve. Thank you so much for asking. Yes, we learned from Einstein's relativity that uh, space and time are linked together. You can only think of space-time. We live in a four-dimensional universe. There are three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. We also learned that the universe is expanding. How does the expansion of the universe fit in with our four-dimensional view of the universe? Here's the thing. The expansion of the universe is only an expansion of space. It is not an expansion of time. 
In our cosmological models of, of our understanding of the Big Bang and the history of the universe, time marches forward. There is a universal clock. There is a a clock that sets the age of the universe. And then at a particular time, the universe is a certain size. So in the past, at some measure of this cosmological clock, our universe was smaller. Then today, at this measure of the universal clock at 13.8 billion years old, it is this big, uh, 90 billion light years across or something like that. And then in the future, at future times on this clock, the universe will be larger. It is only the spatial dimensions that are expanding, and it is the march of this universal clock that is telling you how big the universe is when, depending on how old it is. So this is allowed. Einstein tells us that time and space are indeed linked, but they don't have to be. Depending on the particular physical system, like, say, the entire universe and its expansion history, the spatial dimensions can go off doing their thing, while the time dimension goes off doing its own thing. And that's exactly what we see in the universe. Really, really fun question, Steve. I really appreciate it. I think we got a little bit of time for another question. I don't know. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling spunky. Greg, play the tape. Hi, Dr. Sutter. My name is John. I'm from Seattle. I have a question for you regarding the Higgs field. I've heard it said that the potential energy of the Higgs field in a one-inch sphere of empty space is roughly equivalent to the mass energy of the Earth. I've also heard that the event horizon of an Earth-mass black hole would form a sphere that's approximately one inch. That seemed like a big coincidence. Is there a real connection between the energy density it takes to make a black hole and the potential energy density of the Higgs field? Is the Higgs field related to black holes in some way, even though it's not related to gravity? Thanks for taking my question. I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, this is, a, a again, a really fun question, John. I really appreciate it. This is asking about the, the fundamental nature of our universe and vacuums and energy densities and black holes and gets into all these super, super, super interesting questions about things that we don't fully understand. It is true that if you take the Earth in the whole mass of the Earth, and squished it down to a sphere a little less than an inch across, you would have an Earth-mass black hole a little less than an inch across. That's all you do to make a black hole. You just take a bunch of stuff and squish it down to be really tiny. It is true that if you have an empty box with nothing in it, you have a lot of energy. There's a lot of energy in the vacuum of space-time itself. And I know that sometimes these are just like random words that don't have any meaning. And feel free to treat it as such. Just, just know that the vacuum of our universe, a state with absolutely no particles in it, has a lot of raw, bare energy in, in it. You can't use this energy for anything. You can't use it to do work or to heat things up. It's just there. It's just the, the ground state of our universe has a bunch of energy inside of it. Technically, uh, the amount of energy in the vacuum is, well, infinite. Immediately, that starts to feel a little bit uncomfortable, that's, but that's what all of our uh, mathematics and our observations tell us how that energy is divvied up 
amongst the various characters in the universe is going to have to wait for after the break. I love teasing it. I love teasing it. I love cliffhangers. Sorry, it's just going to be how this works. We are going to come back after a quick break. Don't forget to leave a voicemail to join the conversation or to join the Space Cadets live at Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links. Uh, This is Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter. That's P as in Paul, M as in Matthew, Sutter as in Sutter. Patreon.com slash PM Sutter is your contributions that keep the show on the air. And I will see you after the break. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got so many more cool questions ready to go. But remember, you... Yes, you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the live streams. Check out spaceradioshow.com for all the links. Before the break, we are listening to John ask a question about the vacuum energy of space-time and Higgs fields and black holes. Technically, there's an infinite amount of energy in space-time. That's not very helpful. How it's divided up between the various uh, characters in the universe is a matter of, uh, let's say, convention. You get to kind of randomly decide how much energy the different fields have, uh, how much mass they have. When it comes to the Higgs field, the Higgs particle has a certain mass. The Higgs field itself it can have whatever kind of energy it wants. So these connections between Higgs field, vacuum energy, black holes are a little bit specious because you're just, at some point you just have to make up definitions. And if you make up definitions in the right way, you get, you can get things to line up in interesting ways, but they're only interesting because you kind of set it up to be interesting. So I'm going to go ahead and say there's not really a strong connection there, except there's a lot we don't understand about the vacuum energy of our universe. Now, moving on to our space guest, we got Thunderduck on YouTube asking, why do some people think the moon is made out of cheese? What? It, it, it's not? Made out of cheese? I, I don't understand this question. I'm just going to move on. Optimus Narkill on YouTube is asking, what are my thoughts about the newest repeating fast radio burst that was found? It's a signal every 157 days. What do I think it could be? Okay, so there's something powerful happening roughly every 157 days. Okay, nature makes weird stuff. I don't know what it is. It's probably something blowing up on the regular. Nature can surprise you with how regular she can be. I'm going to guess it's natural because that's the safest bet. Justin Engel on YouTube is asking, does the tendency of dark energy to try and resist expansion constrain its spatial spread and increase its density, causing it to have more explosive effect like an overfilled balloon? Good question about dark energy. This is the accelerated expansion of our universe. Everything we know about dark energy says that it is constant. Its density is constant. If you have a certain volume, you're going to have the constant density of dark energy, which will give you a total amount of dark energy, say, in this room I'm in now. And then if I compare my room to my house, my house is going to have more dark energy because there's more volume, but the density will remain the same. So the universe is getting bigger and bigger. 
the density of dark energy remains the same, but the volume of the universe is going up, which means the total amount of dark energy is going up. And this is actually what counterintuitively is driving the accelerated expansion of the universe is the fact that you get more dark energy today than you had yesterday. It could also be that the density itself is going up. We're not exactly sure about that. That's a scenario called phantom dark energy. If that's true, the universe will rip itself apart in five billion years. So let's, let's hope it's not. Chris Delney on YouTube is asking, when we're trying to figure out the age of the universe, do we take into account something called the surface of last scattering? The surface of last scattering is the visible limit of our universe because past that, the universe is too thick, too much of a plasma is too opaque for us to see. The actual edge of the universe is just past that. We get the age of the universe, not from this, not from this, but from our model of the Big Bang, from our cosmological models, informed by data, informed by things like the cosmic microwave background. We plug those in to get the ingredients of the universe, and from there, we can tell you its age. So the more we know about what's inside the universe, the better we're able to pin down its age. So basically to answer your question, yes, we take it into account. Another question, uh, Prime JD is on Twitch, advice for a grad student preparing to go through Jackson E&M. So the physics textbook on electromagnetics is written by Jackson. I can see it on my bookshelf right there. I see it right down there. Jackson, uh, electromagnetics. <sighs> Any advice? Read it. Do all the homework problems and listen to your professor. It's not an easy book, but it's not an easy topic either. It's just like if you want to give yourself an education on electromagnetics as a physicist would, uh, go buy this book. It's Jackson, electromagnetics. Good luck. All right, moving on. Uh, Julius on YouTube is asking, why does the distribution of stars in the universe, it doesn't follow a standard distribution. Why are there far more red dwarfs than other stars? Yeah, like something like two-thirds of the stars in Milky Way are red dwarfs, these tiny little things half the size of the sun. The reason that smaller stars are more popular is that they are far, far easier to make. In order to make a big star, if you want to make something that's like 20 times the mass of the sun, you need to get a lot of stuff together in the right space, collapse together without blowing away, without getting uh, you know, irradiated. It has to collapse. That is a tricky thing to do. It's just really, really hard to make big stuff. But it's really easy to make a small star, something like half the mass of the sun. You can do that without even breaking a sweat. So it's like asking why are there so many more two-story buildings than 20-story buildings? Because it's a lot harder to build a 20-story building than it is to build a two-story building. And unfortunately, we are almost out of time here on Space Radio. But before we go, it is time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is The Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I know uh, that you have heard about, perhaps participated in, uh, thought about, conversed about the unrest that our country is seeing. Uh, 
about uh, Black Lives Matter, about racial injustice, about police brutality. I've been doing a lot of thinking, and I wanted to to share some uh, another angle of this, another angle of racial injustice, another angle of of how uh, minorities like black students have a tougher time in our educational system and moving up in the ranks of our educational system than you might think, because a lot of universities, a lot of institutions which I'm a part of, put on a, a good face that, yes, we are welcoming we uh, to, to black students, to minority students, to, to women, uh, to, to, to everybody. But then when you look at the numbers, the numbers tell a little bit different stories. So, so I want to share some numbers and some thoughts on those numbers. Not everything, not all my sources are up to date to 2020, so I'm, we're just going to take what we have. Uh, for example, in, in 2004... In 2004, across the entire world, there were 1,186 PhDs in physics awarded. That's 1,186 PhDs in physics awarded in the year 2004. About half of those were in the United States, half were in the rest of the world. Of those, of those 1,186, 13 were awarded to black Americans. That's a deliberate pause there. Of over a thousand PhDs awarded worldwide, 13 were awarded to black Americans. That was 2004. If we look back the past 30 years, there were a total of around 35,000 physics PhDs. So, you know, there's about a thousand new physics PhDs awarded every year. Total in 30 years, in 30 years, black Americans were awarded 288 PhDs in physics. 30% of those were in the past six years. Um, it's not much better for bachelor's degrees. In bachelor's degrees in 2015, there were a total of 7,329 bachelor's degrees awarded in physics. Of those, 175 went to black Americans. And here's something else. This number hasn't really changed in 20 years. This number hasn't changed. African Americans, black Americans are getting roughly between 150 and 200 Bachelor's degrees in physics uh, every year since the mid-90s. Here's the thing. There are more... <laughs> there are more than 13 black Americans who are more than smart enough, capable enough, intelligent enough, like, good enough to earn a PhD in physics. There are. There just are. Why aren't they? How are we failing black Americans when it comes to higher education? Why aren't they interested in physics? If they are interested in physics, why aren't they applying to good undergraduate schools? And if they get a bachelor's degree, why aren't they applying to good PhD schools? And once they're in the PhD system, why aren't they finishing? Why are there so few black Americans in higher education, and especially my fields like physics and astronomy? When they're smart enough, they're out there. There are young Black kids who are could be the next Einstein, who could be the next genius. Maybe one of these kids has figured out how to unify physics, but he or she doesn't get a chance uh, because we've let them down. I don't have solutions right now. I don't have solutions, but I just wanted to present uh, another angle on this. Mm -hmm. 
And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter to learn how you can contribute. Uh, But if you'd rather not contribute this month, please go to discoveryrise.org. It is an organization that I'm contributing to, uh, discoveryrise.org. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for Angling and the Space Cadets, and all the fine crew at WCB Radio 90.5 FM in Columbus for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern and visit spaceradioshow.com for more info and links to the live stream. And of course, of course, thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. And of transmission. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.